On this special episode of Serverless Chats, we talk about the things you need to know to get started with serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 21. Hi everyone, I'm Jeremy Daly and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I thought I would do something a little bit different. For the last 20 weeks, we've been talking to a number of serverless experts and we have gotten a lot of great information from them. And these conversations are in depth and they're detailed and we go into a lot of the nuances about what serverless is or a specific aspect of serverless. But what I wanted to do today, sort of in the style of a TED radio hour, is look back over the last 20 episodes and try to pull out some of the ideas I think that are super important for people who are learning serverless. Now, even if you are into serverless and you have been doing it for a while, I think there are a lot of different aspects of this, you know, sort of unique and interesting technology or architectural patterns um, or, you know, how you want to look at it. There's a lot of tools that are available out there. So what I thought I would do is grab a couple of excerpts from the last 20 episodes um, and, and see if we can tell a story with those. So I hope you like this episode. I know it's a little bit different and next week we'll get back to doing our, uh, our regular serverless chats. But I wanted to try this because I'm hoping that this will help people who are just getting into serverless um, or even have been using serverless for a while uh, understand some of these different concepts, uh, especially coming from all of these great experts that I've had the pleasure to talk to over the last 20 weeks. So let's get started and see how you like it. I think one of the major components behind serverless applications is this idea of event-driven architecture. And event-driven architecture is not new, but it's certainly more prevalent when it comes to building serverless applications. So back in episode number five, I spoke with Mike Deck from AWS, and I asked him if he could explain event-driven architecture and how it fits into serverless. This is how he answered. So yes, I mean, I think that it's it's probably easiest to understand it when contrasted against kind of a command-driven architecture, which I think is what we're most mostly sort of used to. So this idea that I've got some set of APIs that I go out and call, um, and, I, and I kind of issue commands there, right? So I maybe have like an order service, so I'm calling create order, um, or I've got downstream from that, there's some invoicing service now. And so the order service goes out and calls that and says, create the invoice, please. Um, so that's kind of the, the standard command-oriented um, model that, that you typically see with API-driven uh, architectures. Uh, an event-driven architecture is kind of, uh, instead of creating specific directed commands, uh, you're simply publishing these events that talk about facts that have happened, uh, change, you know, these, these are signals that state has changed within the application. So the order service may publish an event that says, hey, an order was created. Um, and now it's up to the other downstream services to, they can observe that event and then do, um, you know, do the piece of their pro do the piece of the process that they're responsible for at that point. Um, so it's it's kind of a subtle difference, but uh, but it's really powerful once you really start kind of taking this um, further down the road in terms of the ability to decouple your your services from one another. Right. So um, when you've got a lot of services that need to interact with a number of other ones, you you end up kind of with a lot of 
uh, knowledge about all of those downstream services getting consolidated into each one of your other kind of microservices. Um, and that can that leads to, to more coupling. It makes it more brittle. There's more friction as you're trying to change those things. So that's a huge kind of benefit that you get uh, from moving to this event-driven uh, kind of architecture. And then in terms of uh, kind of the, the relationship to serverless, obviously, with services like uh, AWS Lambda, you know that that is a fundamentally event-driven service. It's it's about being able to run code in response to events. So when you move to more of this model of hey, I'm just going to kind of publish information about what happened, then it's super easy to now add on additional kind of custom business logic with Lambda functions that can subscribe to those various different events um, and and kind of provide you with this ability to build uh, to build service applications really easily. So event-driven applications do give us this ability to decouple our applications and to scale individual services independently, which is, is very powerful. But it also introduces some additional issues, which Ron Ribbonzap from episode number eight explains. We broke them from being a big monolith, a big single monolith, to multiple of microservices. You can call it microservices, services, nanoservices. But the fact that there was one giant thing that broke into 10 or hundreds of resources suddenly presents a different problem. A problem where you need to understand what is the interconnectivity between these resources, that you need to keep track of messages that are going from one service to another. And once something bad happened, you want to see the root cause analysis. This is like a repetitive thing that you can hear over and over, uh, this root cause analysis. So the ability to jump from the error the error can be like a performance issue or like exception in the code all the way to the beginning. The beginning can be the user that click on a button in your uh, business website that caused this uh, chain of events. So these are the kind of things that you want to see where in traditional APMs, in traditional monitoring solutions, you don't have it. And in the future ones, you'll find it more and more like that. So the question then becomes, how do we see this interconnectivity if some of these traditional tools aren't giving us this level of insight? Emmer Shamdan explained this in episode number 12. But in serverless, it, uh, on the other end, it is like uh, you have uh, like different pile of logs, which is out of which, which comes out of bugs from CloudWatch, from from uh, the resources that Cloud Vendor uh, propose. But these are actually separate, and these are not actually giving the full picture of what happened in the distributed serverless environment. And what what you need here is that the 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 problems is uh, are different in in normal environment. The problem like most of the time was actually about scalability. And you were responding by giving more resources, by just increasing the power of your system. But with serverless, the problem is about like some some problem occurs in, in any kind of a system in a distributed network. And you need some more than log files. You need like all three pillars of observability, which is called like traces. In our case, it is like distributed traces, which shows the interaction between Lambda functions and the managed APIs and the managed resources and third-party APIs and the local traces which shows what happens in the Lambda function and the metrics and the logs. 
So logging is obviously really important uh, in order for us to understand what's happening in our serverless applications. But distributed tracing, as Ember mentions, is also really important to know what's happening with all of these different services that maybe our Lambda functions are connecting. So if you think about distributed tracing and you are in the AWS environment, uh, the first thing that probably comes to mind is AWS X-Ray, which is a really, really great tool for debugging production and distributed applications. Um, but there are some limitations to that, as Nitzan Shapir explains in episode number two. Uh, X-Ray will integrate pretty well with the AWS APIs inside the Lambda function, for example, and will tell you uh, what kind of API calls you did. Uh, it's mostly for performance measurements, so you can understand how much time the DynamoDB put item operation took or something uh, of that sort. Uh, however, it doesn't try to go into the application layer and the data layer. So that means so if it, some kind of information is passed from one function to another via an SNS message queue and then going into an S3, triggering another function, all this data layer is something that X-Ray doesn't look at because it's meant to measure performance. And that's why it would not be able to connect uh, asynchronous events going through multiple functions. Because again, this is not the tool's purpose. The purpose is to, uh, again, imp measure performance and improve the performance of certain specific Lambda functions that you want to optimize, for example. So whether we're using X-Ray to measure the performance of our application, or we're using a third-party tool that can actually trace all of these requests to different APIs and different third-party services as well, we still need a way for our applications to actually capture that information so that these tracing systems can use that data. So in order to do that, whether that happens automatically or it's something we do manually, we still have to instrument our code. And so here's Ron again to explain what instrumentation is. Uh, instrumentation is the way or a technique uh, which allows a developer to, let's call it hijack or add something to every request that he wants to instrument. For example, if I'm making a calls using Axios to a REST API for my own code to an external or third-party API, I want to be able to capture each and every request and response that are coming in and out from that resource, from that Axios request. Why would I like to do that? Because I want to capture vital information that I'll be able to ask questions about later on. For example, if my Axios is calling Stripe to make a purchase or to, uh, to send an invoice to my customer, I want to know how long it takes because I don't want my customer to wait uh, on his purchase page or wait for his invoice to get into his email. I want to make sure how long it takes so I can measure that, put that as a metric in Cloud Metrics or in any other service, and then I'll be able to ask, well, was there any operation against Stripe that took more than 100 milliseconds? If so, it's bad. And this is only accomplished using instrumentation. I mean, the other way around is just to wrap my own code every time that I'm calling Stripe or every time that I'm calling any other service. But with the amount of annotations that you'll have to add to your code, it's almost unlimited. So you won't get out with it without a proper instrumentation in your code. 
So manually instrumenting all of these different functions and all of these different API calls obviously is quite a bit of work. Um, and I look at this and I say, this is something that anytime you implement a manual process, it's very easy for humans, for developers to forget to do these things. Uh, Nitsen has some other thoughts on why automating instrumentation is such an important thing. I mean, it's not just the fact that you can forget, it's also just gonna take you a certain amount of time always that you're going to basically waste instead of writing your own business software. So even if you do remember to do it every time, it's still going to take you uh, some time. Uh, so some ways that can work is, of course, uh, embed, it, embed it in your standard libraries that you work with. So if you have a library that is commonly used to communicate between services, you want to embed uh, that uh, tracing information or x-ray information there so it will always be there so that will this will kind of automate a lot of the work for you um so that's just a matter of what type of tool do you use so if you use x-ray you're still going to have to do some kind of manual work uh, and it's it's fine at first the problem is that when you suddenly grow from 100 functions to a thousand functions that's where you're going to be probably um a little bit uh, annoyed or even lost because it's going to be just a lot of work and it doesn't seem like something that really scales. That's where, I mean, anything manual doesn't really scale. Um, this is why you use serverless because you don't want to scale servers man manually. So growing from a small number of functions to a very large number of functions quickly, uh, I think it's very typical of serverless applications, certainly for me. And so getting started early with the right tools in place to make sure that we can properly debug these systems once they get very, very large is extremely important. And I think this is quite evident from the story that Sheen Bristles told me about what Lego did when it came to logging, monitoring, and tracing. So we do sort of a structured logging that kind of evolved from a simple log messages. So we have sort of a decent level of logging in place. So if we, you know, if you look at the logs, we should be, we are now able to um, trace things through. Then at one point we started, uh, we have a, a monitoring system in place. So we kind of stream the logs to Elasticsearch as well as to the monitoring system. So with the structured logging, with Elasticsearch, we are able to, um, you know, uh, go through and uh, identify any issues or engineers work with that. But one area that we didn't uh, focus or we didn't uh, put in place was the distributed uh, tracing side of things. So that's why I think I once tweeted that if you are uh, if if you are starting your serverless journey, please you know start with the distributed tracing in mind. I mean, you can start with the X-ray or bring in a third-party tool. So that's that. That's uh, very crucial. That gives uh, lots of confidence before confidence to to the team. So I think this idea of confidence or team confidence is very, very important and it's very interesting because when we talk about serverless applications, we often talk about the fact that we're using a number of managed services that we essentially don't have to worry about. We don't have to worry about the patching of them. We don't have to worry about uh, if a server goes down that the cloud provider is going to take care of this for us. But sometimes things break, especially in distributed applications. So the question is, What's the best way to prepare ourselves when an incident like this happens? Here's Emmer again. So the best way to get prepared for an incident is actually to experience it before. 
but no one wants to experience some, something bad like over and over again, right? So, and the, the, the nice thing that we can do with chaos engineering is that you can just get yourself prepared by actually simulating this, these kind of problems. So you can ask yourself, what if this third-party API that I'm using starts to respond slower? What if the DynamoDB that I'm just leaning on like completely starts to not to not to respond? So you can you can run such kind of an chaos engineering experiments, and in this case you should you should be knowing that what what will happen, and you should be knowing that not 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 just because of not from the perspective of what to do, but how to inform the customers, how to inform the upper management, how to have the let's say the uh, retro, you can understand how you can respond this kind of situations uh, from many different perspectives. So distributed systems are often very complex and there's a lot of moving parts. And if one of those parts breaks, it can affect the entire system. So understanding how to deal with that is really, really important. Emmer mentioned this idea of chaos engineering. And on episode number nine, I had a long conversation with Gunnar Grosh where he explained what this is. Well, the background is that we know that sooner or later, almost all complex systems will fail. So it's not a question about if, it's uh, rather a question about when. So uh, we need to build more resilient systems. And, and to do that, we uh, need to have experience in failure. So chaos engineering is about creating experiments that are designed to reveal the weakness in a system. So what we actually do is that we inject failure intentionally in a controlled fashion to, to be able to gain confidence so that we get confidence in that our systems can deal with these failures. So chaos engineering is not about breaking things. Uh, I think that's really important. We do break things, but that's not the goal. The goal is to build a more resilient system. And this idea of building a resilient system, especially in distributed systems, is extremely important. But there's a difference between reliability and the system always being up, as opposed to resiliency, which Gunnar explains. Resiliency isn't only about having systems that don't fail at all. We, we know that failure happens, so we need to have a way of maintaining an acceptable level of uh, operations or service. So when things fail that the service is is good enough for for the end users or the customers so having a system that allows you to maintain an acceptable level of service for your end users is extremely important but gunner explains why running these experiments can also help you with disaster recovery so we do the experiments to be able to find out how how both the the system behaves and also how the organization, the operations teams, for example, how they behave when failure occur. Chaos engineering is a fascinating discipline, and I definitely think it's something that you should look at, uh, especially as your serverless applications begin to grow and you have more and more pieces that are working together. But before we get into testing our applications in production, we need to test them locally, or we need to build integration tests. So on episode number 10, I talked with Slobodan Stojanovic, and he gave some insights into the differences between testing a serverless application and testing a traditional application. So the, there are a few different things, but uh, in general, testing is still the same. You want to check if your application works and the way that you want it to work. 
but some of the things are not your responsibility anymore. For example, infrastructure is like uh, responsibility uh, responsibility of your vendor, uh, such as AWS or Microsoft or someone else. So there's no point in really testing that part because that's that's not really something that uh, they have their own tests and things like that. But you still need to be sure that your business logic is working in a way that it works. And also, all serverless applications are basically microservices uh, that are to uh, working together. Most of the time, you don't have one monolith application that is just uh, uploaded to AWS Lambda or something like that. Most of the time, you have like many different functions. For example, in Vacation Tracker, we have, uh, I think, more than 80 functions now that are working together. So it's really important to be sure that all those small services are working uh, together the way we want them to work together and that our end users have a decent experience and that they can use our application. So as Slobodan explains, a lot of the traditional approaches to developing software and testing software is going to stay the same with serverless. We're still going to use unit tests in order to test our business logic. We're still going to do integration tests to make sure that we can connect to our databases and other third-party services. But the fundamental way that we think about software and the way that we develop software has sort of changed now that we are developing on the cloud. From episode number four, Chase Douglas had some thoughts on this. Yeah, so we the way that we've always developed software uh, up until very recently was uh, it would in the end be running on servers, whether it's in a data center or in the cloud, but these servers were monolithic compute resources. And that meant that uh, typical architectures might be a, a LAMP style stack. You've got a, a Linux server and you've got a, a MySQL database uh, off to the side somewhere, maybe on the same machine, maybe on a different machine. Uh, but mostly as a developer, you're focused on that one server. And that means that you can run that same application on your laptop. So we're, we're, we've become very comfortable. We built up tooling around the idea of being able to run an entire application on our laptop, on our desktop in the past, uh, that faithfully replicated what happens when that gets shipped into production in a data center or in the cloud. With serverless, the, everything is kind of a little, works differently. You don't have a monolithic architecture with a single server somewhere or a cluster of servers all running the same application code. You start to break everything down into architectural components. So you have an API proxy layer. You have a compute layer that oftentimes is made up of Lambda, though it can include other things like uh, AWS Fargate, which is a, a Docker-based uh, serverless in the sense that you don't manage the underlying servers uh, approach. So you've got some compute resources. Uh, if you need to do queuing, instead of spinning up your own cluster of Kafka machines, you might take something off the shelf, whether it's uh, SQS from AWS or their own Kafka service or Kinesis Streams. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole host of services that are available to be used off the shelf. And so your style of building applications is around how to piece those pieces together rather than figuring out how to put those and merge those all into a single monolithic application. 
So Chase mentions this tooling that's available for traditional applications, but when you start to break things down into architectural components, we have to think about how we deploy those and how we test those a little bit differently. So on episode 13, I spoke with Effie Merdler Kravitz, and he talks a little bit about serverless development tools that are available now uh, and, and how we should use them. There are a lot of tools today that enable you to package, to upload, deploy your code. You have tools today that help you to monitor and debug. Use them. Don't write something on your own. Don't waste your time on it. Um, I think one of the first things that you need to learn is to learn tools like AWS CloudFormation or Terraform. Okay? These are the tools that enables you in the end. These are the basic tools. Uh, these are the building blocks that enables any serverless packaging technology uh, to, deploy, uh, to deploy your code, to deploy your various sources. So no matter what um, uh, uh, serverless framework you choose, either the serverless framework or Chalice, in the end, behind the scene, everyone are using either CloudFormation or Terraform. So I think it's, it's, a very, it's very important to learn uh, the basic building blocks. Um, I think you need to learn how to automate your tools, uh, automate your testing. So use very, uh, good testing libraries like PyTest or Jest, and there are many others that are very good. And also use serverless plugins to test some of your flows locally, like DynamoDB or API Gateway. So Effie makes this really good point about learning something like AWS CloudFormation. And I tend to agree with that because even though we abstract some of these things away, understanding what's happening behind the scenes, I still think is a really good thing that you should learn. Uh, but the other point he makes about testing locally, uh, he goes on to talk about some fidelity problems with that. I think it's a painful point right now in serverless, in serverless testing. And I think the only thing that I can say right now is that... Um, Testing locally, just as you said, won't give you the quality that you're expecting. In the end, te local testing will bring you uh, a certain amount of, uh, of validation on your code. But I think that the best way uh, uh, to increase your testing velocity is to give your developers the ability to run their code easily and fast in the cloud. I mean, that's the only way to actually test and making sure that the code that you wrote is working. So testing your code in the cloud is obviously a really good idea because it does give you that fidelity that you miss when you try to use something like local mocks. But what if you do want to develop locally and you want to be able to iterate on your code quickly? Chase Douglas explains some of the challenges with that approach. You start with some code and that code for a Lambda function has this handler that gets invoked. One of the things that uh, I did early on when I was starting to play with this to try and speed up this, this iteration workflow is, well, I could write a little wrapper script that uh, invokes that handler code function uh, with some test data just to get it running locally without having to deploy it all out. And um, came, there came along some tools that kind of helped facilitate this mechanism. Uh, AWS SAM, their, their tooling has uh, SAM local invoke where it will take your function code and it will actually spin it into a Docker container and run it as though it's in a proper Lambda environment. Uh, the serverless framework has a similar thing, but even there you have a challenge where the permissions that your function has is based on the permissions that you have locally on your laptop. Now, a lot of developers, they have permissions on their laptop, 
but they have sort of administrator permissions. They can, if they wanted to, uh, interact with any resources inside of their AWS account. Whereas the function that you're building, it's tied to a very specific set of permissions where you don't normally give it full administrator access. So you have to sort of, a lot of times you get your code working, and then as a second step, you have to figure out, is the code still working when I deploy it to the cloud and I've got the, the permissions set the right way? And then lastly, you've got the challenge of that service discovery piece, where if I'm running on my laptop, how does my function know which DynamoDB table it should be interacting with, which SQSQ it should be sending messages to? So you've got to solve these problems through some mechanism. And a lot of people have come up with their own little test scripts on the side that help here and there. But there's a, there's a, a, a real need, a real challenge there around uh, having a workflow that a whole team within an organization can uniformly use and, and provides them with that, that sense that they're bringing the cloud to their laptop locally. So Chase's company, Stackery, has a really elegant solution to this testing locally and being able to use cloud-side resources while still running things locally. So definitely check out stackery.com to learn more about that. But the other thing he mentions is IAM roles, and this has to do with the security of our functions and which resources they have access to. Now with serverless, a lot of this is now put on the developer. So I spoke with Hillel Solo in episode number 11, and he kind of tells us what's the difference between traditional applications and sort of where we are now that we're moving to serverless and the cloud. One of the things that you see in the move to serverless, and again, I don't think it's a serverless only thing, but I think it's a serverless more than anywhere else thing, is that sort of divide between security people and developers, it's not really tenable. And you know, in serverless, a lot of the security controls that you know that security used to own are now security controls that developers control, like configuring IAM roles and setting up VPCs and things like that. And so in a lot of ways, we've actually put more responsibility on developers, but we haven't necessarily empowered them in real ways to make security decisions. And at the same time, we haven't given security people a way to meaningfully understand and audit some of those things when they don't necessarily understand what the application does or what the code wants to do. So I think that's that's been a big change. And, and I think that's true across a lot of cloud applications, but it's just truer in serverless applications, you're kind of forced to reconcile that. The, the other thing uh, about serverless applications specifically that we like to talk about is the fact that developers have gone from you know an application that comprises 10 containers to one that comprises 150 functions, you know, can create all sorts of nightmares in testing and, and monitoring and, and, and you know deployments and things like that. But for security, there's an interesting win there where you get to apply security policy, IAM roles, uh, runtime protection at a very fine-grained level, you know, at a kind of a zero trust. Uh, uh, you know, small perimeter level. And, and that that's, if you can do it right, if you do it at scale and automatically, that could potentially be a huge win really for, you know, mainly least privilege, reducing attack surface and reducing blast radius. You know, if something goes wrong, my developer left a backdoor uh, accidentally into a function, but now that function really can only do right to one particular table as opposed to, you know, in the old world where that gave an attacker a lot more capability. So I think that's an opportunity that is on the table. It is challenging to capitalize that, you know, on that, you know, like you said, there's less time, there's less gates between developers and running production code. And that means that, you know, how do we automate and capitalize on a lot of that value without trying to slow everybody down? That's the big challenge. So this idea of least privilege principle is really interesting. And it is something that we have a lot of control over in serverless, 
if we build single responsibility functions. And oftentimes as we move our applications to serverless and people are new to using Lambda, they will build fat functions. So I spoke with Brian LaRue in episode 17, and he has some thoughts about that approach. Uh, I think it's totally appropriate to build out your first versions with just a few fat functions. But as time goes on, you're going to want that single responsibility principle and uh, the isolation that it brings. Um, there's one last small uh, interesting uh, advantage to this technique uh, is that the security posture is just better. You have less blast radius. Uh, if your functions are locked down to their least privilege and their single responsibility, um, you're just going to have a way better um, uh, risk profile for security. So security in the cloud is obviously a very, very big topic. Uh, so I would suggest that you listen to episode 11 with Hillel Solo, and you'll learn a little bit about the tools that you can use and some of the things that are available to you now uh, to, to sort of lock down your, your serverless applications. But the other interesting thing is this idea of cost. So we've now moved to this sort of pay-per-use billing model for most of these serverless components that we're going to use in our applications. So the question is, when choosing which components to use, how much of that responsibility now falls on the developer on top of security? So I spoke with Eric Peterson in episode number six, and he talks a little bit about what developers need to think about and why it's important that we think about cost. If you're a SaaS vendor, uh, you know your, your value delivery chain is, is built on top of cloud. That's your cost of goods. That's your gross margin. You need to understand that if you're going to deliver a profitable product to to the market, and and you want your you want that conversation to be part of your entire organization, um, because I mean the reality is is that the buying decision is being made by your engineering team now, right? They they uh, choose. Am I going to use this type of instance or that type of instance? Am I going to use, am I going to implement this kind of code or that kind of code? They they make a buying decision every moment of of, of every day. Um, you know, essentially, you know, every time, you know, every line of code that they write, they're making a buying decision, and um, and so you have to think about that. And then it, it gets even more complicated though because um, there are so many intertwined, and particularly in the serverless world, which is so, I think, honestly, I'm sure our listeners here will appreciate, you know, our point of view is that we think we believe serverless is the future of all computing. But, you know, it's it's um, it's even more powerful because you create these very um, uh, uh, interesting applications that are um, that are composed of lots of different services, it's not just Lambda compute. It's I have Lambda connected SNS passing to SQS, DynamoDB, Kinesis, all these things flowing together. And I'm not just going to the cheat sheet on Amazon and saying, well, how much does it cost for one hour of compute to like try to estimate my cost? No, I now have to think through that, that whole story. And I think it's kind of a shame that actually a lot, uh, for most organizations, they consider the state of the art there to be, well, let's just try it and see what happens. <laughs> and, um, and a lot of times they try it in uh, test and uh, they go, oh, looks like it's going to cost a couple bucks. Great. Let's ship it. And, once it gets into production, it's a much different story, um, and uh, and they just don't they they really organizations really struggle with this, and it's unfortunate. So I love this notion that a developer is making a buying decision every time they write a line of code because the tools and the resources that they choose to use can affect your bottom line. And it is possible to put your company at risk. So when I talked to Effie Merdler Kravitz, he had a couple of ideas about this and how he controls what his developers are up to. 
I, I think that people, you know, people that come to serverless for the first time sometimes forget how easy to scale serverless. So in a matter of minutes, uh, you can easily get uh, hundreds and thousands of lambdas running simultaneously, millions of requests to the DynamoDB, and in the end of the day, you suddenly see a bill of a couple of hundreds of dollars and you ask yourself, what? I, as a manager, I check the costs on a daily basis and I'm trying to understand the trends. I use the cost exploring AWS quite a lot. And in addition, we also use our own tools. We have our own uh, monitoring tools also gave us a cost breakdown. Um, and I think, again, part of the code review is part of the checklist that I've mentioned earlier. We ask the developers why did they choose, for example, this amount of memory for this specific Lambda? Or why did they add another index to DynamoDB? Uh, each index costs more money because you are, uh, we are duplicating the data. And for example, why they are using Kinesis and not FireOS? So there are many questions we ask along the way when doing the code review. Again, it's not something that can be done automatically, it's something that people need to see the code and understand what's going on. But we ask the questions in order to make sure that developers understand the trade-off, in order to understand that it costs a lot of money. And you know, especially for startups where money is always tight, uh, suddenly paying thousands of dollars per month, it's, uh, it's dangerous, it can be really dangerous. So it's not only, oh no, you know, we'll use the corporate uh, credit card. It can be really dangerous for your startup. So you need to pay attention for it. So I definitely agree that developers should be paying attention to the different resources they're using uh, and understand those billing models so that they make sure that those costs don't spiral out of control. But when you're trying to solve a problem for your customer, there are certain tools that you use and there are certain costs that are going to accumulate there. So the question becomes, how much should we be focusing on optimizing our applications, whether that's for speed or whether that's for costs? And is there something to be said about premature optimization? I spoke with Alex Debris way back in episode number one, and he had some thoughts on this. In terms of you know purity versus practicality, there you need to think about your use cases and what matters to you. And um, you know if you're not going to have a user-facing application, I wouldn't worry that much about optimizing it. Um, it you know, or if your if your bill's not that high right now, like don't worry about optimizing it. But most importantly, I think this is true of of serverless or non-serverless. But I think it's it's been a focus in the serverless community. But like focus on building a product that brings value. And you know if if speed is something that brings value to your customers because they want a quick responsive app, then maybe focus on speed. But otherwise, focus on building those features and that core experience that that your users are really going to care about. Focus on that first rather than um, some of the optimization techniques, I think. So Alex makes a really good point about focusing on that core experience for our customers. And when it comes to building serverless applications, that's one of those benefits where we can iterate very, very quickly and put things into production and test them very, very quickly. But as a community, we've set out a number of best practices. And sometimes those best practices are at odds with the way people are developing these applications. So I spoke with Michael Hart about how they're developing their serverless applications at Bustle, and he had some thoughts on best practices and premature optimization. Don't try and prematurely optimize, um, because I'll tell you, we, we at Bustle, we have very large, we have very few, very large lambdas, and we do billions of invocations a month. We, you know, we do 
um, many, 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 many page views, um, and our latencies are very low, um, and it's it's not perhaps as bad as you think. It, there are some tricks you might need to do, like like you, um, we webpack all of our JavaScript into one single file, right? Um, so that there's no there's no file system calls being made um, whenever it's it's required, um, and and we minify it, and it, so there might be people that go, oh, that that's kind of a gross hack, but well, all right, for us, that's fine. You know, we've got plenty of developers that know how to do that and that are, that are comfortable um, doing that and, and would be less comfortable managing um, 50 or 100 tiny functions uh, maybe uh, and dealing with, with the ops of that because it's not, it's not free. You know, a function isn't a zero-cost piece of infrastructure. You, you still need to monitor them. You still need to maybe tune them. You still need, There's a whole bunch of things that every function you have, you, you need to think about uh, a little bit and monitor and that sort of thing. So, yeah, so, so even things like that, um, I think that there's this, there's this spectrum for best practices and, and I would say try things out first. Um, maybe be, be aware that it's a, it's a lever that you can pull, but, but try them out first and don't, and don't stress too much about um, having the perfect, um, there's, there's no single way to do these things, basically. So I totally agree with Michael Hart on this. Uh, even though Lambda has been around for five years now, this notion of serverless is still relatively new. And there are constantly new services coming out and new features. And it's really hard to keep up with all these leading practices or best practices. And oftentimes you find that when you follow some of these practices, that it doesn't quite fit in. It's not quite the right way to do things. So we talked about event-driven applications and we talked about resiliency and we talked about testing and security and cost. Uh, we talked a little bit about observability. And these are all really important things to know. And obviously, understanding this entire ecosystem is a huge undertaking. But the benefits of, of what serverless can bring, I think, are, are, are pretty big. So I hope that you'll get a chance to go back and listen to some of these episodes uh, to get a little bit more context around uh, what these great guests were talking about, and certainly to look at all of the, the resources that are available to learn about serverless and, and continue on your own serverless journey or to start your own serverless journey. So hopefully this episode was useful to you and we boiled down some of these main points uh, and some of these main ideas around serverless. So good luck with your serverless journey. And I hope you will join me in the future for some more serverless chats. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to all of my guests for having such amazing conversations with me every single week. If you want to check out the show notes of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 21. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.